0: Thank you, so much. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome. If you're new with us, like Soma said, my name is Brad. Uh, I'm a pastor here. Excited to be here. We continue today in our series in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, the letter we call Ephesians. And uh, we're continuing in Chapter 3. If you were with us last week, uh, Pastor Bernard was with us. And he began chapter 3 for us. It was a, a powerful message, a powerful time, and I'm excited to continue on together in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn there with me to Ephesians 3. I'm going to read the first 13 verses, so it overlaps with last week and to take us into today's text. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. To God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me. we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to the church in Ephesus that you had Paul write, that you inspired for him him to write, Lord. And thank you for the word that it brings for us today as a church in Vancouver in 2023. I pray that your spirit would fill us as we enter into this word, that you would speak to our hearts through it, that you would bring it to life in our midst in this place today. And Jesus, may you be lifted up. May you receive all glory, honor, and praise. Teach us more about you. Teach us more about what it looks like to be followers of you. And Lord, mold us and shape us and make us in your image today. We love you because you love this first, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Everything good comes with a cost. Moving jobs, you have to meet new people. You have to figure out new systems, all the onboarding process. You have to navigate new social dynamics, which for some can be terrifying. A college degree comes with a cost. There's late nights. There can be student loans and debt. There's a lot of hard work. Moving out of your parents' house. Now I have freedom. It's wonderful. I needed to do this for a while. But also now I have to pay rent. And I need to do laundry. And I need to clean this place so it doesn't get absolutely disgusting. The toilet doesn't do that on its own. Manage. Very good. Very costly in its own ways. I'm sure I don't need to elaborate for those in the room who are married. Children, goodness me. Children are amazing, but they are costly. So much money, time, energy, tears, sleep, just mental capacity, sanity, you could argue, I might argue. Kids never want to sleep, but when you have them, it's literally all you want to do. So there's this constant fight back and forth. Everything good comes with a cost. Following Jesus, I hope I speak for many in this room, has been the most beautiful, most meaningful, exciting thing in my life from the day I made the commitment to follow him. But it also comes with a great cost as well. The cost may look different for all of us, but there will be a cost. That's just the reality. And as we continue in Ephesians 3 today, I'm going to review and touch on a little bit from what Pastor Bernard shared last week. And Pastor Bernard began chapter 3 for us where we're reminded of what following Jesus cost the Apostle Paul. And why, according to him, and I think it's fair to see, the mission was worth it. The mission was worth it. We'll come back to this idea at the end, because that's how Paul finishes as well. But Paul begins chapter 3 saying, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So, obviously, the author of this letter is Paul. And as many of us will know, we talked about last week, Paul's name used to be Saul. And when Paul's name was Saul, it represented a whole different life that he lived. Saul hated followers of Jesus. He made it his very mission to destroy the church of Jesus, arresting Christians, throwing them in jail, and then doing much worse, as Bernard talked about last week. And here he talks about being in prison for Christ. Following Jesus has cost Paul a lot, has cost him his very freedom. He writes this letter from a prison in Rome to the church in Ephesus that he planted before so, this man used to throw people in jail for following Jesus. Now he has been thrown in jail for telling people about the good news of Jesus. As Michael Scott from The Office might say, Oh, how the turntables. It's a reference for just a few in the room. What has happened, and pause and think about this, like, think about this, from persecuting Christians. To pastoring Christians and planting churches and being persecuted for Christ. It's a very big ship. And the answer is Paul encountered, in a real and personal way, the risen Christ. And Jesus totally and utterly changed his life. Bernard walked us through briefly the story in Acts 9 last week. I want to remind us of it again. In Acts 9, it records the encounter of Paul and Jesus on the road to Damascus. It says this. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners (coughs) to Jerusalem. This is the whole purpose of his trip. Jesus then, as the story goes on, tells another believer named Ananias what Paul's mission was to be. And Jesus says, this man is my chosen instrument. This is what he tells Ananias about Paul. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This encounter with Jesus and this commissioning radically shaped Paul's view of the church, the Christian life, and his own mission. Here is Paul suffering with Jesus and for Jesus in prison. He's literally a prisoner for the sake of telling the Gentiles the good news of Jesus. He's made it his mission to go to non-Jewish people with the good news. And he traveled all throughout the Roman Empire to do it. And as a result of his missionary journeys... He was beaten, he was stoned with rocks, he was whipped, imprisoned, he suffered shipwrecks, and now he's in jail again. But for Paul, it was all worth it. How could that possibly be worth it? Then Paul almost gets distracted at this moment in the letter, and he goes on a bit of a digression. He can't help but reiterate what Jesus has done for people. Look at verses 2 to 6. He Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this thing, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to other generations, as has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So here he talks about the insight that he received by revelation. Revelation, we've talked about this earlier in the series, when Paul prayed for wisdom and revelation, the spirit of revelation. Revelation is an unveiling. It's really an opening of the curtains. It enables us to view history and the events in our lives and history from God's perspective and plan. This is what revelation brings about. And Paul speaks about revelation into the mystery of Christ. The Greek word he uses there is mysterion. Paul uses it 21 times in his letters and six times here in Ephesians. Mysterion. And this word mystery, I think it's helpful to to point out, this word mystery doesn't mean some riddle. I think we would often think of it, maybe we read mystery novels, and we love mystery novels. And, and mystery novels, you're reading trying to figure out the riddle. What's the answer? I've got to figure out the twist. The mystery in this context, mysterion, doesn't mean some riddle to figure out in the biblical usage. It doesn't mean some problem to solve either, as much as our brains might think of it in that way. It doesn't mean some problem to solve. Mystery here, mysterion, means something that was concealed In the mind of God in the past and has now been revealed through revelation in the present and here defines the mystery he says this mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus in Jesus Gentiles you and I most of us in this room are now part of the family, members of God's people in one body together. We were excluded from the covenant people of God. We were without hope, but now we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are in on what God is doing in the world. This is incredibly good news. We are in on God's mission in the world. Through faith in Jesus, there's now one people of God, Jew and Gentile, who share together in God's plans, in purposes and blessings. This is not about one group replacing the other. It's about both groups becoming one in Christ Jesus, he who is our peace, and who makes the two one. One people, one family, in perfect union. It may be helpful, there's a story, it's kind of famous, there's a story from the Second World War where soldiers brought the body of a fallen comrade to a French cemetery to have him buried. The priest told them kindly that he was bound to ask if their friend was a baptized member of the Catholic Church. This is general protocol. And the men replied that they didn't know. They they didn't know either way. And the priest said that he was very sorry but he could not allow him to be buried in the cemetery. So the soldiers took their comrade and buried him just outside the fence.
1: The next day, the
0: soldiers came back to see if the grave was okay, and they couldn't find it anywhere they searched. They were about to leave, feeling very confused and a little bit upset. When the priest approached them, and he told them that he'd lost sleep the night before, thinking about his refusal, to have that body buried in the cemetery. So early that morning, he had risen from his bed, and with his own hands, he had moved, he not reburied the body, he had moved the fence to include the body of the soldier who had died in France. It's a powerful story. But likewise, we see Jesus doing something kind of like this from day one of his earthly ministry, moving fences so that he could invite more people in. This was the ministry and mission of Jesus. He breaks down all kinds of barriers to offer a drink to a Samaritan woman. So many reasons why that was a moving of defense moment. He breaks down all kinds of fences to go to the house of a Roman officer whose child is sick. He breaks down all kinds of walls to touch those with leprosy and heal them. And all kinds of other uncleanness Jesus enters in. Jesus is always jumping over and breaking down and moving fences in order to save sinners, to bring people far from him into the fold, to draw near those who are far off. It's one of the many reasons why we love Jesus so much. This is incredibly good news. And there's a strange idea in some forms of scholarship. And in popular imagination. That Paul somehow ruined the movement that Jesus started. But this isn't true at all. This is absolutely fundamentally not not true. Paul just continues the work that Jesus began. He continues Jesus' work. He continues the work in a huge way with the Gentiles. Of breaking down walls to include more people. You were excluded. Now you are included through Christ. And Paul is so gripped by this truth. His whole life is transformed by this truth. But he wasn't an innovator. This was God's plan all along. God promised to Abram, if you remember in the book of Genesis, God promised to Abram that he would have descendants who would bless the nations. All nations. All peoples would be blessed through him. It was a promise that the Messiah would inherit the nations and that Israel would be a light to all people. Jesus even commissioned his followers to make disciples of all nations. This might sound familiar from the Great Commission text in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. It was always the plan. It was always about the nations, about all peoples. God's tribe is as big as the whole world. And everyone is invited. Now this has puzzled biblical Bible readers because Paul says... That he has insight into the mystery of Christ that was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. This might feel kind of confusing. If God's plan was always to bring blessing to the whole world, in what sense is this a new revelation that wasn't known before? If this was always God's plan, how is it a new revelation? In what sense is this something that was hidden and has now been revealed? And the answer is that no one had fully realized the radical implication and extent of this plan of God. That Jews and Gentiles would be fully embraced into the people of God on completely equal terms through Jesus, through Christ's blood. That Jew and Gentile would become the family of God and the temple of God, indwelt by the very presence of God. This was never imagined before. Gentiles would not have to become Jewish in order to be saved, in order to become part of God's covenant people and receive the blessing of being his people. They wouldn't have to become Jewish to get in on the good news. They, just like Jewish people, would simply need to trust in Jesus. He's already trying to steal my thunder. (laughs) And this is what Paul was giving his very life for. This good news that it wasn't a matter of becoming Jewish in order to be saved, but all were invited into the family of God on equal terms, those terms being the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's giving his life for. And he goes on to write, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And then you hear what he says. This is an apostle, by the way. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me. In the midst of talking about the message that he's proclaiming, he refers to himself as completely unworthy to proclaim it. He says, I am the least of God's people. I am less than the least of God's people. It's a fascinating way to describe himself, and we should camp here for a minute, because I think it's pretty important. This might sound a little bit familiar to you. In his first letter to the Corinthians, in about 55 AD, approximately, Paul wrote, Quote, I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Then a little bit later, in this letter to the Ephesians, written... Years around, probably around the year 62 AD approximately, he writes this, although I am less than the least of all God's people, what we just read. And in the Greek, the phrase is quite striking. It's literally less than the least. And then a little bit later in his letter to a younger man that he mentored named Timothy, written around the end of Paul's life, probably around 66 AD, this is even a little bit later than Ephesians, Paul writes, Quote, here is a trustworthy saying that that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I don't know if you noticed, but as those years go on with each instance of Paul writing this, as Paul gets older, his assessment of himself actually gets worse. His assessment of of himself actually seems more negative. First, he says he's the least of the apostles, which, let's be honest, is still pretty good. Like, it's still pretty... I I would take being the least of the apostles. The apostles were the foundation of the church. It's not a bad place to be. He goes, I'm the least of the apostles. Then he writes a few years later that he's the least of all God's people until finally, in, in this Timothy letter, he arrives at the worst of sinners. What's going on here? What's going on here? I think... It's a journey that hopefully many of us go on in our life with Jesus. I think it's about growing in Christian maturity. Paul is someone who models growing in Christian maturity, and he does it very quickly because he came to know Jesus relative to when he was put to death, relatively late in life. And Paul's a great model of growing in Christian maturity, But age doesn't always automatically lead to maturity in life and faith. I think we know this. Growing older doesn't necessarily mean growing wiser. We can do the same foolish thing for a very, very long time. We can be like wine or like milk. Both age, but they age very, very differently. It's possible to grow older and lose our sensitivity towards sin. That's possible. To start rationalizing our sin rather than repenting of our sin. To start excusing our sin, rather than eradicating it. That's the path to increased immaturity and distance away from God. But the path to maturity involves the very opposite direction. Most people in this room uh, won't know this, but I can, in a very, very novice sense, play the drums. Very novice. Don't ask me to show you. But I've always, had, I've always had a very innate sense of rhythm and a really good ear for music. So I picked up the drums more naturally than any other instrument I ever played. To an extent, I was able to pick up the sticks and start to play at a pretty basic level just by ear. So I could pick up and just start to play the drums. So I played in worship bands and all this kind of stuff. But I hit a point where I wanted to get better. I wanted to learn and improve. And so I started to actually practice and give myself to practicing and time to practicing and try to get better and try to learn. It was funny because as I committed myself to practicing and trying to get better, I felt like I was making more and more and more mistakes. It seemed to me like I was getting worse. and It was driving me nuts. Absolutely infuriating. And I remember asking, why am I practicing and getting worse? What a waste of my time this doesn't make sense, right? But it turns out it's actually a common sensation for not only drummers, but just as humans, as we're learning certain new things. The reality is my playing wasn't actually getting worse. My ear for the drums and intricacies of it was just getting better. I was becoming more and more aware of timing and other issues, realizing maybe I wasn't as innately good at this as I thought. Practice was making me better, but it was also making me more attuned to my own mistakes. The good news is, I haven't played in years, so I will be back to being blissfully unaware of my mistakes. So that's the good news. But the Christian life can feel a little bit like that, right? The closer we get to God, the more attuned that we can get, the more attuned we are with the Holy Spirit, the more aware we can get of our sins. You might even think you're getting worse the closer you draw to god and this isn't true you're actually growing and becoming more like jesus you're not getting worse you're getting more sensitive to the things that break god's heart and they'll stand out like a sore thumb that sensitivity is indicative of improved health of maturity christian maturity And as we grow in maturity, we become more and more aware of our sin, the things that drive a wedge between us and God. We become more and more in awe of the fact that God loves us in a way that heals our shame and heals the broken places within us over time. It's awe-inspiring. The closer we get to Him, the more this reality sinks in. I don't know about you, but I want to age like wine. I want to grow in my love for God and for people as I grow older. And as I grow in love for God and for people, I hopefully will grow in my sensitivity toward the ways in which my actions and my words hurt those people, which will lead to repentance and growth all of the way until the grave. The more Paul walks with Jesus, the more he's aware of the ways that he falls short but the more amazed he also is at the love of God for him and the fact that God chose him, even him, and gave him a very special and unique job to do. All of that as the least among God's people, as Paul would say. He's blown away by the fact that God would choose him of all people to perform this mission.
1: And he says, This grace was given me
0: And notice how he calls it grace. That's very important. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. Which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. For each of us, and for Paul, as an overflow of this perspective, this is incredibly good news. Through him, in him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Paul's amazed, not only that he gets to approach God, but that he gets to share with others the unsearchable riches of Christ. A friend told me once that his parents once expressed to him and his sister that they regretted not being able to save up a big inheritance to pass on to the kids. And his sister, in a moment of brilliance, that I'll be honest, I'm really cynical, and if I had been there I probably would have made a comment about how cheesy this was. His sister, in a moment of brilliance, said, You told us about Jesus. That's the greatest inheritance we could ever receive. Again, I'm just a mean brother. I would probably say something. But that's profound and true. And she didn't say it just to make them feel better. She felt this truth in her core. This was real. This was true. And Paul would agree. Paul sees that as the greatest inheritance we could have and ever have received. We have unsearchable riches in Christ. Paul was given grace to preach this message to all people and in doing so to reveal the manifold wisdom of God in the church. The wisdom that created all things, that planned our rescue, that put to death our hostility, that unites Jew and Gentile together into one new people who embrace the Messiah, Jesus. All of this is revealed in the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. That might be a confusing statement. I'll allow Daryl Johnson to explain it better than I could. He says this about that idea. More is going on in being the church than what meets the eye. Something cosmic is happening. In sharing the unfathomable riches of Christ, and in living those riches in the new community centered in Christ, principalities and powers are hearing the gospel. When anyone preaches the gospel, the angelic powers in the heavenly places are being informed about the true nature of reality. God makes all of us ministers of the gospel to the human realm and to the angelic realm. All of us who belong to Jesus are ministers, bringing the mystery to light for others. It's a big statement. It's probably a lot to think about. I'll give you a solid week to just think on that. I'm going to need a week to think on that. But in light of Paul's calling, in light of the amazing privilege of being a part of what God is doing in history, Paul writes, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Remember what I said before. We're back to this. Paul loops back to this because he can't help himself. It's so important. Paul knows He used to throw Christians in prison for following Jesus. Now he's been thrown in prison for telling others about Jesus, and he says, don't be discouraged. There's a cost to following Jesus. And Paul's willing to suffer for Jesus and to suffer for other people. Paul thinks it's worth it. He wants the believers in Ephesus to believe it. Don't be discouraged by my suffering for the gospel. There's a cost to following Jesus. And right now, all across the world, people are suffering for Jesus and even dying for Jesus. Why? I think the world would look at that and ask, why? Why in the world would you go through suffering and death for something you can't see and can't know? But the answer to the why question is because Jesus is worth it. Paul believes this at his core. Because the mission of Jesus is worth it. I think we all know this, right? The more you love something, the more you're willing to suffer for it. And Paul loved Jesus and Paul loved people, so he was willing to suffer for both. He says, don't be discouraged because of my suffering. Jesus is worth it and you are worth it. There are things more important than our security. There are things more important than our freedom. Might get in trouble for preaching that in America. Just a little sidebar. There are things more important than pleasing parents and popularity. There are things more important than our comfort. Now, don't get me wrong, if you can avoid suffering, do it. <laughs> I think that's important to know. If you can avoid suffering, do it. See a physio, pop a pill, have that surgery, do it. If we can avoid suffering, go see Lester. If we can avoid suffering or alleviate it, we should do it. Just getting you business over here, Lester. (laughs) Suffering is not a thing that is good in and of itself. On its own, it's not a good thing. So avoid it. That's totally fair. If we can avoid suffering, we should do it. The hinge point is, but not at all costs. Not at all costs. There are moments where the choice is between Jesus and our comfort. And we choose Jesus. And if it costs us something that shouldn't discourage us, shouldn't discourage other Christians or seem strange, it should actually encourage and embolden and bring life to other Christians. Yes, Jesus is enough. You're right. Man, what good news that is.
1: It's why Paul also
0: describes the love of Jesus and by extension, the love that we're called to walk with in 1 Corinthians 13 as long-suffering. I got to preach a sermon on that text this morning. It's profound. We can talk about it later. He describes the love we're called to live in and the love of God as long-suffering. Thank you for the reminder that Jesus is worth it. See, if we're trying to get from Jesus anything other than Jesus, we will be disappointed. For sure i can promise you that if we're trying to get anything other than jesus we will be disappointed jesus and following him is not a means to some lesser end like comfort or financial security jesus is the goal his honor his glory his fame his family eternal union and relationship with him in jesus we have unsearchable riches He is the goal, and what more could we possibly want? But everything good costs us something. Paul's an incredible reminder of this. And any version of discipleship that doesn't cost us something, quite frankly, isn't Christian discipleship. When we make Christian spirituality all about us, and how we improve our lives and reach our potential, as frankly, the church has been doing in North America for a long time. The call to forsake all and follow doesn't always appear compelling or gain a purchase in our hearts and minds. But it doesn't change the nature of Jesus' call. Jesus' call remains the same. And if Jesus is not worth suffering for and the Jesus we know is not the Jesus of history, is not the Jesus of the apostles, the Jesus of the early church, the Jesus of scripture, or of Paul. Because they were more than willing to suffer for that Jesus. And if that's the case, then the superficiality of our discipleship is exposed. So the reality is, it's not ultimately discouraging if Christians are put in prison. It feels odd to say. It is discouraging if Christians are unwilling to be put in prison for the cause of Christ. The cause of Christ, I emphasize. Not causes ulterior to Christ, the cause of Christ. After COVID, we very much need to specify that. For the cause of Christ. Putting Christians in prison will not stop the gospel being proclaimed all over the world. Paul's example proves it. you can't chain this message, you can't cage this message, or keep this message behind bars. It will always break out. I was reminded recently that for every, this is a quote, for every one affluent millennial rejecting Christianity and the church, which feels like is a very common story that we experience around us, for everyone, there are five non-white, poor, majority world people flocking to Jesus as the only hope in the world. The Western world is not indicative of what is going on in the wider world. It's an encouragement, that's hope. In the West, it seems like the church is losing steam in some places. Maybe it feels that way in Vancouver. But in the world, it is picking up momentum and growing faster than ever. You can't stop the message. Putting Christians in prison will not stop the gospel being proclaimed all over the world. Christians not being willing to be put in prison is what will hinder the forward progress of the gospel, all for the sake of Christ. Friends, there is always a cost to following Jesus. This is what Paul reminds us of. But the beauty of it is this, and I'll close with this thought. The beauty of it is this. When we suffer... He suffers with us. When we are persecuted, he is persecuted. It's why on the road to Damascus, when Jesus met Paul, when he was Saul still, the quote wasn't, Why are you persecuting my people? Jesus said to Saul, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He said, It's me, you're persecuting me. When we suffer, he suffers. When we're persecuted, he is persecuted. And our willingness to suffer for his sake testifies to the world. The beauty and worth of Jesus that is greater and beyond anything else. So Paul says, don't be discouraged from my suffering for the gospel. Because Jesus is worth it and so is his mission. So, pastorally, there's like this urge to like finish by trying to communicate to you all the ways that this might apply into your life. Give you six, seven examples to think over, stew over, pray over. I don't want to do that. I just want to allow the Spirit to speak, to guide our hearts toward the truth that He has for us, and simply ask the question in our lives, In all the facets of our lives, in our relationships, in our work, in our stories. Can we echo the words of Paul? Do we truly believe that Jesus and his mission and his story is worth it? No matter what the cost, no matter if it costs us something dearly, costs us something great. Is Jesus worth it? Do our lives reflect that? I just want to allow some space for a minute before I pray for us to close. For each of us to just give some real thought to our own lives. Because I don't know your life like you do or like the Holy Spirit does. So I want to allow some space for reflection on our lives and that truth of Paul. It says, Don't be discouraged by my suffering for the sake of the gospel. Be encouraged, because Jesus and his message is worth it. Jesus and the good news that we are one family. All together we are united, brought into the good news of what God is doing in our world. This is worth it. So don't be discouraged. I want to take a minute with hearts and minds open to the Spirit. And then I'll respond in prayer. You search our hearts and you know us. You know our inmost thoughts and longings and desires and fears. You know those things in our hearts that we love the most, that we're the most willing to suffer for. You know what we hold dearest closest to our heart. So we just invite your Holy Spirit to stir in us. Lord, we want more than anything to be a people that sound and look an awful lot like Paul in this text. To be a people who say, forsake all else, Jesus is worth it. Even if it, even if it requires a sacrifice of comfort, of security, of quote, success by whatever metric we live by, even if it costs me, Jesus is worth it. there are incomparable riches in the kingdom of God. And that's what we're living for. So search our hearts, Holy Spirit. I just pray today that you would stir in us not only a longing to see you in this way, Lord, but also an awareness of, of where there's work yet to do. And Lord, I'm struck by Paul's self-reflection. I'm struck by Paul's way of speaking about himself as he grows older and matures and sees, Lord, I am so far from it. I want to be so much more like you, Jesus. And I miss the mark over and over again. All these things I want to do, I do the opposite. All these things I don't want to do, I keep doing them. Lord, I'm so far from where I want to be and where you want me to be. But all the more beautiful is the good news of grace and love and the kingdom of God that invites us in. The finished work of Jesus that by His blood brings us into the one family. Lord, help us see ourselves and the world, our sin, sin, our comfort, our success, our security, all of these things, Lord, the way that you do through the lens of your kingdom. Align our hearts with yours, Lord. May we be able to say, boldly and with confidence. Jesus is worth it. Because there is nothing that compares to the riches Of the good news of the kingdom of God. That is all I want. That is what I want more than anything else in this world. No matter what it takes. Thank you, Jesus.